This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. This is Mark Greenbaum. I'm a professor of law at Suffolk University Law School, and I teach courses in labor and employment law. And this is really the third installment of uh, what turned out to be a series of podcasts concerning the now-resolved NFL lockout. Like all football fans, I'm happy that the conversation is now back to issues like free agents, cut list, undrafted free agents, and the like. But in our joy about having something better to talk about, I think that there are some legal issues that need to be highlighted, particularly in view of the fact that the National Basketball Association is now engaged in a parallel proceeding with its players' union. So let's, if we can, go back to the judicial proceedings that were the subject of my first two podcasts and recall that after installment two, the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit issued a decision after having stayed a lower court decision, finding that the lower court's granting of an injunction against the lockout was an error. Now, what was significant was that the Eighth Circuit's opinion was predicated on its belief that the lower court was without jurisdiction to issue that relief because of the Norris LaGuardia Act. And the Norris LaGuardia Act, as mentioned in a previous installment, was a statute that was passed in 1929 and was really designed to prohibit employer abuses of the equity system. Nonetheless, as drafted, the statute basically prohibits district courts from granting injunctions in so-called labor disputes. Now, the crux of the issue in this case is whether we had a labor dispute, because at the time that the injunction was sought, the NFLPA had decertified and was thus claiming we are no longer a labor union, and therefore there is no longer a labor dispute. The district court agreed with that contention and was reversed in so doing by the Court of Appeals, which held that notwithstanding the absence of an apparent bargaining representative, that we still had a labor dispute within the meaning of Norris LaGuardia. Now, why is this important? First is, just as a matter of pure academic interest, the Eighth Circuit opinion you know, gives a very broad construction to the term labor dispute, and I think seemingly ignores the fact that Norris LaGuardia was designed to prohibit union busting, not employer busting, for lack of a better term. The second is the impact of the decision on the NBA lockout. Certainly the NBA Players Union has suggested that it too is considering a decertification tactic, much like that used by the NFLPA. And we now have a circuit court opinion that suggests that the tactic may not work because of the Norris LaGuardia Act issues that are raised. It's then going to be, I think, incumbent on the NBA Players Union to, in effect, win the, the race to the courthouse. You know, certainly if I'm the NBA and I want to get judicial relief in this case, I'm going right to the Eighth Circuit. No ifs, ands, or buts. The NBA Players Association is going to have to find a more hospitable circuit than the Eighth Circuit. It would probably be the Ninth if I had my guess. But there is, in fact, going to be a race to the courthouse, and 
you know, should things go in a particular direction, we will get some new views as to the meaning of Norris LaGuardia. Now, that leads us to a second issue that was not resolved at all, which was that the owners had filed an unfair labor practice charge against the union, claiming that their decertification was a sham and should be ignored. There was never any action upon that charge by the acting general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board, Mr. Leif Solomon. And so his view and the view of his office as to the merits of the owner's charge, you know, remains an open issue. And this is in some respects much more serious than the the Norris LaGuardia issue because it may call into question first the legitimacy of the decertification tactic to begin with or in the alternative if Solomon were to conclude there was no basis for the owner's challenge then the entire intellectual underpinning of the Eighth Circuit decision disappears. So in effect we've got two sort of what I would call Star Trek territory issues i.e. the reach of Norris LaGuardia and the ability of an employer like the League's challenge the legitimacy of a certification that will be very important in resolving the NBA bargaining dispute, which in its own way is much more difficult than the NBA one, because the NFL is just dealing with dividing a lot of money, whereas no matter what anybody says, I think there are some number of clubs in the NBA that have economic distress. Part of it was overexpansion. Part of it was the stupidity of ownership and the like, but it does present a much more difficult bargaining context. A second issue I wanted to address is something that may mystify some of the readers of the sports pages, and to be honest, mystifies me a little. That is, in the reporting between the end of the lockout and the opening of the training camps, there was a suggestion that there were certain discrete issues like pension plans, drug testing, and and dispute resolution that had to be resolved in the context of collective bargaining and thus had to await the union's reacquisition of its majority status. Now here's where at least my problem comes in. Under established National Labor Relations Act law, if an employer reaches an agreement with a union which does not at the time of that agreement have majority status, even if the union subsequently acquires majority status, any collective bargaining agreement reached under those circumstances is invalid. Now, presumably the way around it in this case is that the things that settled the bargaining dispute, i.e. the division of revenues and the like and the free agent salaries, were not between a union and the league, but between a class of individuals with named plaintiffs and the league, with the result being that that kind of settlement arguably makes it immune from antitrust scrutiny because the parties have, in effect, agreed that there is no antitrust issue in the settlement. The problem becomes, to me, is that there are you know, some issues in the settlement, and I'll use as an example the whole question of off-season workouts and the limitations on the use of pads during the season, that seems to me to go way beyond the potential antitrust issues and which are more, I think, generically involved in the concept of collective bargaining. So how you can make this sort of distinction between what could be resolved in the lawsuit 
and what has to be resolved in collective bargaining after the union reacquires majority status is a distinction which for the moment eludes me. Now, that being said, it's not clear to me exactly how something like this might get challenged, but I'm sure that somebody will figure it out at some point in time. To me, I think the real trigger was the economics of the preseason. Because remember that for all of these preseason games, each of the clubs are charging, in effect, retail, but paying their players at wholesale rates. You know, they don't start getting their game checks until the regular season is over. So you're looking at a very wide profit margin, not to mention the ancillary broadcast revenues, and any loss of those revenues would be irreplaceable. So I think that the coming open of the preseason and perhaps, you know, the act of the canceling of the Hall of Fame game, you know, may have been more of a trigger to settlement than was the insurance policy. But as is so often the case when one is not there and one is not witness to the dynamics, I could be absolutely wrong. One final note, and that has to deal with the role of lawyers. There was much made in the press, and I guess deservedly so, about the fact that no progress was made until the lawyers disappeared and the parties started talking with each other. Well, that's apparently true, but I think from my perspective, also distressing in this sense. To me, the role of a labor lawyer, that is, a lawyer who is representing either a management or a union client, is to facilitate the resolution of bargaining disputes. They're supposed to be the enablers of settlement, not the obstructors. In this case, the attorneys for each side appear not to have subscribed to that ethos. And I think it's a little bit discouraging to me as an attorney with a particular view of the role of a labor lawyer that at many points during the negotiation process, members of our profession were deemed to be you know, dysfunctional rather than enabling. So there's no real solution to that, but I think for people that are contemplating going to law school who are in the midst of sort of formulating their own professional demeanor and ethos, that it is a worthwhile issue for further reflection as you continue your education or continue your practice. I suspect we'll be talking again come late August or September with the NBA lockout taking further shape and dimension. So let me just wish everybody a good summer and enjoy training camp. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.